The jagged valley he gouged across his wrist was already starting to heal into thin pink scar tissue. The blood on the floor was already tacky and turning brown. Fuck. He dropped the razor with resigned disgust. The thin clink of it on the bathroom's tile floor made him think of a tiny funeral bell. Shit. He walked out into the living room of his shabby apartment. He closed his ratty robe against the chill he suddenly felt. Drink. He walked past the decomposing couch, squatting like a dirty beast in the living room, into the sparse kitchen. The refrigerator was empty except for a half bottle of brown mustard, which had started life as a full bottle of yellow mustard, and a three-month-old fortune cookie. The cabinet above it was the alcoholic opposite. He was spoilt for choice. The green bottles of gin mingled happily with the clear bottles of vodka and the amber-tinted bottles of whiskey. He squinted, thinking as hard as he felt he should over his decision, and reached for a single malt scotch. He kissed the bottle hard and swallowed harder. He drained a fourth of the bottle in one go. He let the bottle hang precariously in between his fingers as he sauntered back to the couch and fell unceremoniously into the middle of the battered thing. A fine mist of dust erupted around him. His eyes began to water as he took another long pull from the bottle. Damn it. He got back up and made his way to the bathroom. Every surface was gray and covered with a thin film of indiscernible substance. The blood from his ill-fated suicide was a Warshak test on the tiled floor. His razor was missing, and he wondered what kind of pest problem he had when the pest required arming themselves. He gently got down on his knees and inched himself into position in front of the toilet. He then began to violently retch. The regurgitated alcohol left hot gravel along the back of his throat. As the initial waves of nausea waned, he looked down with an despair into the bowl. It contained three human fingers, a ball of hair, and two bottle caps. The caps were from extremely cheap beer. One of the fingers was still wearing a wedding band. Huh. The former owner of said finger would be missed. He washed his mouth out with brownish water that came out of every faucet in his apartment. He went back to the couch and the bottle, then, after two more tugs on the bottle, silently prayed that he'd die in his sleep and passed out. The corpse of John Belushi would not shut up. Some poor slob ends up your dinner and let us blame it on pit bulls. Again. You should move to a farm or something. Did you think of killing yourself again? should try drowning since cutting or pills didn't work. Shut the fuck up, John. I'm not moving. I'm not found out. Yet. John Belushi sneered menacingly. It's only a matter of time before the police find a hair sample or some blood. Then they'll come to your apartment. They'll find the money and the passports and those dog adoption catalogs you find strangely arousing. Jesus Christ, I get drunk and look at those things once, and I'm branded a dog fucker? John Belushi began to knock on his head with a closed fist. The look in his eyes was insanely urgent. The man's head turned slightly with confusion and led credence to his mannerisms were becoming closer to an animalistic side. I suppose that means I should get some sense knocked into me, huh? You could have just told me, you know. There were subtler ways than beating the hell out of yourself. John Belushi's eyes got buggy and wild. The sound of his fist against the skull became thunderous to the man. Will you just stop? He screamed as he violently woke up. He was drenched in a sickly, sour sweat and found himself lying in a completely uncomfortable position on his couch. A spring from the dark, patchy well of the couch's frame had thrust itself painfully into his side. Loud knocking was coming from the other side of his apartment's front door. Peter. Peter Wolf. Municipal Police Department. Are you home, sir? The warm sweat of his skin dropped in temperature enough to make him shiver. The new cold sweat scared him in ways the police never could. Just a, just a minute. We just want to ask you some questions, Mr. Wolf. 
We'd be happy if you're wearing pants. That made Peter instinctively check that if he was, indeed, wearing pants, and sigh with odd relief that he was. He went to the bathroom and slammed down the lid of the toilet, nothing like severed fingers to make a bad first impression. He sprinted back to the door and undid the door chain and the deadbolt. He cracked open the door enough to get a quick take of the cops before he committed to fully facing the proverbial firing squad. The cops could have been brothers. Maybe they were. White males, middle thirties, slim builds, lean. The one on the left looks like he's got nitchy trigger finger. There's something quick and cruel behind his eyes. The one on the right gives off the impression of a feral jungle cat, patiently lethal, waiting for the moment to strike. He is the calm, and his partner is the storm. Thank you, Mr. Wolf. We won't take too much of your time. There were some attacks, we'll call them, in your neighborhood. Some residents report a large dog. One in particular described the animal as a... The jungle cop flipped listlessly through a small notepad. She described it as some that looked like it fell out of an angry bear that had been fucked by Satan. Peter choked a little on that. We're just wondering, cruel cop muttered as he inched closer and tried to eyeball Peter's apartment, if you heard anything or saw anything or owned a pet of some kind. Peter slid into cruel cop's eyeline. Nope. Nope what? No, I didn't see anything or hear a thing. And I, uh, uh, hate dogs. Yep, absolutely filthy things. I wish we'd use them to start fires. Be that as it may, we found some blood leading from the scene of the attack to the front of this building. Jungle Cop reached into his pocket, making it very apparent that he was armed and fishing out a business card. Here, if you remember anything, anything at all, the card said Warren Vesper, Municipal Police Department. Wolf looked at the front of the card, flipped it over, looked at the back, quizzically, and then flipped it back. He looked at the Jungle Cat Cop. Your Vesper? Jungle Cat Cop smiled like it had been slashed on his face with a razor blade. This made Peter uneasy and, and oddly nauseous. That's what the card says, Mr. Wolf. Peter slipped the card into the threadbare pocket of his robe. The card doesn't say who he is. Does he have a card? Wolf asked snidely. Cruel Cop sneered, baring his teeth. A guttural growl thundered lowly in his throat. Vesper held his hand up, interrupting Cruel Cop from leaning forward and most likely, by Wolf's estimation, throttling Wolf to death. His name is Buddy. Wolf opened his mouth to speak spout one of the ten jokes he had just thought of, but Vesper stopped him abruptly. Names aside, Mr. Wolf, if you remember anything, call us. Certainly, officer. Detective, Vesper interrupted matter-of-factly. Peter choked back a laugh. Yes, sorry, Detective Vesper. Wolf left the door cracked open, and Buddy, he added as he finally closed the door and locked it. He put his ear to the door and closed his eyes. He concentrated his preternatural hearing on the cops walking down the hallway. I think he's fucking lying. You think everyone's fucking lying. Well, they are. I read that. You couldn't read a stop sign. Could if I tried. Moving on, I agree. He knows something. I would like to kill him. Let's hold off on that for now. And then eat him. Wolf sloughed off his robe, took a shower, and got dressed. His wrinkled clothes fit him poorly. His shirt, a yellowing white dress shirt, hung limply over his wrists. His drab brown slacks were threadbare. He threw on a pair of battered sneakers and a beat-up sheepskin jacket. If the cops were on his trail, he would have to either eliminate the evidence or, barring that, throw them off his trail. Peter stopped by a convenience store, picked up a Red Bull and a pack of Camel Filter cigarettes. Food, he muttered, as he lit a smoke and took a long pull off the can. He stopped again at the ramshackle newsstand. The top two selling papers had headlines pretending to torture being legal and the nation's currency being on fire. Peter Wolf didn't care. He scanned the lesser papers until he found what he was looking for. The Midnight Star's headline proclaimed a frog baby to be a love child of Elvis's ghost. Underneath that, a blurry picture could have been a German shepherd on steroids if Wolf hadn't recognized it as himself. 
Peter scanned the tabloid. Late-night parkgoers had witnessed a large hairy beast dragging a drunken man into a heavily wooded area. The man was unidentified, and the photo for the article had been taken from one of the witnesses' iPhones. Wolf noted the knotted mass of shrubbery in the blurred picture. Some half-bright memory, fringed in red, made the park spot seem familiar. He put the paper back on the stand, took a drag of the camel, and dropped it, grinding it under his heel. Then, slamming the rest of the Red Bull and casually tossing it into a nearby trash bin, headed to the park with an anxious conviction. The bushes were cordoned off with yellow caution tape. Peter Wolf thought cops only used that stuff in movies. He ducked under the perimeter and shuffled through the greenery. He closed his eyes and let the breeze waft by his nose. He filled his lungs with deep breaths as he picked up on scents that jogged those crimson memories. He could taste the metallic tang of blood on his tongue, feel the men thrashing and finally surrendering to his gnashing jaws. The bones, rent from flesh, splintered between his teeth as he savaged his victim. It wasn't a wild chase, a true hunt, but it made his hungry belly full. Wolf opened his eyes. They darted quickly but razor sharp, taking everything in. He could see the signs of the struggle, but more importantly, he found the tufts of rusty brown hair stuck to the bush's burrs. He pulled the feathered clumps of off the sharp thistle and let them loose. One less thing to worry about, Peter thought as the hairs danced away past the yellow tape. Wolf slipped out from under the taped cordon and made his way casually out of the park. He did not feel the lupine gazes of Vesper and Buddy on him. He just flittered away the DNA evidence, Vesper whispered matter-of-factly. He thinks he's safe, Buddy hissed. He thinks he's safe. He has no idea what he's up against. We've been waiting almost a century for someone like him. I'm hungry, Vesper. Vesper looked into Buddy's eyes and caught a glimpse of the hunger they both felt, but unlike himself, Buddy had no patience or tolerance for the discomfort. We'll get some nice Italian. You like Italian. That should tide you over, yes? Buddy wore the look of a puppy that had been kicked. Yeah, sure. Peter Wolf returned home, the apartment seemingly less derelict than before. He was proactive against his condition, and taking matters into his own hands felt good. It was time to celebrate, he thought. This time, every drink from the bottle, gin this time, was a little bit of sunshine in his stomach instead of the burning fire of misguided absolution. Jean Belushi still would not shut up. You think you're so fucking clever, don't you? Even in the dream, Peter could feel the lopsided grin sitting comfortably on his face. He nodded casually. You're not smarter than the cops. The police might have had a slight chance with the hair, but now, not the police, you jackass, Belushi infuriatingly replied. The cops. Oh, you mean, Detective, I have such a big dick, and his partner, yes it is, I've seen it. So they grasped with some straws coming here. My quick thinking and apt wit kept me one step ahead. A loud rapping at the door was too piercing to be interpreted as John Belushi pummeling himself. The booze hadn't knocked him out as much as he would have liked it to. His eyes strained to open. It took a relative month for his leaden legs to take commands again. He heaved himself up and stiffly walked to the door. He squinted through the peephole. The wall-eyed visages of a smiling Vesper and a scowling buddy bulged back at Wolf. Peter was getting sick of the greasy, cold layer of sweat that oozed out of him whenever those bastards showed up. He swallowed hard, his throat suddenly lined with sandpaper, backing hesitantly away from the door and reluctantly unlocking it. With blinding speed, Wolf was thrust back onto the couch. Buddy had his hands fast on Wolf's chest, holding him down firmly. Vesper was closing the door quietly. He turned his attention to Peter. Double murder, tampering with crime scene, destroying evidence in an ongoing investigation? That's a hell of a couple days for you, Mr. Wolf. Wolf's eyes couldn't seem to find a suitable target to rest on. 
The bloodshot orb spun from Buddy to Vesper to the door and boomeranged back to Buddy to start the cycle all over again. His confused look landed on Vesper. Double murder? Vesper sauntered over to his captive audience and loomed over him with a smile that was the complete opposite of reassuring. Vesper reached into his suit jacket, brandished a small steno notepad, and flipped through it casually until he found what he was looking for. One Mario Vincenti, Italian restaurateur, tragically mauled and killed several hours ago. The report, when I file it, will tie to the victim in the park from two nights ago. Wolf just stared. Vesper took a breath. Of course, when Buddy and I followed some, well, let's call them conveniently left clues, and leave it at that, we arrived to find the heinous perpetrator, Peter Wolf, had vacated his domicile with nary a trace of his whereabouts. What? The word fell out of Peter's mouth like a heavy rock. Am I to assume, Vesper said, then cleared his throat, that something is unclear to you, Mr. Wolf? Buddy leaned in close to Peter's ear. His breath smelled like death and cheap mouthwash. We're going to feast on you, boy. Wolf looked up at Buddy as yet another sheen of sweat broke out all over his body. His heart was racing, and he could only focus on one thing at a time. It suddenly dawned on him that Vesper was still chatting away. Vesper was pacing slowly by the door with his back to the rest of the room. See, every so often a totem occurs that is so pure and natural in its essence that it not only does it act as a beacon for lesser, but he snorted disapprovingly. No, no, not lesser, but not as uh, concentrated. Where was I? Your blood will wash down the meat and will pick the leftovers out of our teeth with your bones, whispered Buddy, being only that articulate when a meal was soon to be had. Ah, yes, pontificated Vesper. You not only act as a beacon, but consuming you will add your power, as it were, to us. You see the Native American Karanakawa tribe rituals of cannibalizing their enemies was actually just the continuation of the totemistic consumption rites from times before there were even gods. In fact, Jesus Christ was one of ours. Wait, is totemistic even a word? Vesper finally stopped to take a breath and turned to face Buddy and Wolf. Well, nor a history will, in the end, do you no good in terms of ultimately surviving this little soiree. Wolf saw Buddy greedily licking his lips out of the corner of his eye. Vesper slipped his pad back into his jacket and, with the same smooth, nonchalant manner, pulled out a cruel knife. It was all curves and edges, polished to a silver paleness. Its hilt was gold, flecked with the black of old dried blood. Wolf's heart was throwing itself against the hard cage of his ribs. His skin was hot enough to dry the sheets of sweat that had sprung from him previously. His eyes had ceased starting and were now taking everything in slowly. He could see the difference in Vesper and Buddy's eyes from the time they met to now, how they became more almond-shaped, more feral, less civilized. He could see the hairs on their heads start to muss, becoming ungroomed and wild. He could feel the hairs on the back of his own neck start to stand up. He could smell the remnants of bloody murder on Buddy and the high citrus notes on Vesper's cheap, shitty aftershave. His heart continued to trip-hammer in his chest, and his hands balled themselves into fists. He was sure his slight shaking was felt by Buddy, who had eased his grip during Vesper's speech. Wolf took a deep breath and closed his eyes. Beyond the darkness, past the pulsating reds and purples and black, underneath the lids, John Belushi's smile took up most of his face. Fuck him up, kiddo. Wolf's eyes snapped open, and he felt the adrenaline rush that his lupine alter ego afforded him. He pushed himself against the slackened grip of Buddy, putting the hardest part of his forehead into the bridge of Buddy's nose. The sharp crack rang through the apartment. A hot gush of blood cascaded down Buddy's face. He could sense, with its contact on his skin, 
that every word Vesper had said was true. He felt the animal, the true beast, inside of him. He felt the centuries of hunts, of freedom, of power run through him. He stood up and faced Buddy. Buddy was holding his ruined face in his hands. Blood and snot pushed themselves through the cracks between his fingers. Fudder! Who broke my fudder nob? Wolf cast a casual glance over his shoulder at Vesper. In horror, Vesper's eyes met with Peter's look, which said, Hey, watch this. Buddy languidly looked out, the fire of, of hateful violence starting to dwindle. That fading ember was snuffed out as Wolf pounced on him, and, with teeth as cruel and sharp as razor wire, bit out his throat. Buddy's howling scream gurgled weakly from his new orifice as Peter stood back up. Peter looked down at Buddy as the death rattle wetly ceased. The blood was soaking into his shirt and pooling around the front of his pants, making Wolf think of a rape victim. He heard the clank of Vesper's knife hitting the floor. He spun around to Vesper, who was wearing a face shotgun blasted with fear and loathing. Peter Wolf was lazily chomping on Buddy's throat bits, gore running over his teeth, lips, and chin. He swallowed greedily and sighed. And what, Wolf mused, am I going to do with you? Vesper's whole being slackened, not out of fear, but out of an ill-conceived confidence. His smile, that same razor slash of a thing that was more facial than actual mouth, materialized as Vesper got out and flipped through the pages of his notepad. Upon further investigation, this officer, Detective, Wolf corrected coldly. Um, well, yes, this detective was able to ascertain that the suspect, one Peter Wolf, was in no way connected to the case. The actual perpetrator was utilizing squatting, perhaps, in Wolf's apartment while Wolf was out of town. A fact Wolf was able to support wholly with witness testimonies and to the satisfaction of the, of the municipal police department. Vesper took a deep breath and continued. The suspect was found on the premises and mortally wounded Detective Lindsay Budd. The perp then escaped while Detective Vesper attended to his ailing partner. Vesper looked up from his notes, hope half-heartedly gleaming in his eyes. And they lived happily ever after? Wolf clucked his tongue and seemed to mull over Vesper's new take on things. After a beat of silence, after the tension between the two had grown thick enough to cut through, Wolf spoke up. You're close. Everything but the end. John Belushi flashed across Wolf's brain. He was doing a line of coke off a naked woman's ass and laughing maniacally. Wolf violently lunged at Vesper, feeling claws at the end of his forelegs, his suddenly sharpened fingernails. One hand held Vesper fast at Vesper's shoulder. The other plunged deep into the detective's chest. Amid the dry crackling of splintered chest bones, the soggy sucking sound of Vesper's heart being torn from his chest was paramount. Wolf treated the muscular mass, wet and deep red, as a savored succulent fruit, taking hungry bites from it. Wolf's eyes, lighted anew with his power, met Vesper's eyes, the cold light of fervent hope dying quickly. The hard thought of Vesper's body echoed softly in Peter's ears as Peter walked slowly with conviction to the cabinet above the refrigerator. The bottle of scotch was half empty from days ago. In his present condition and situation, Wolf decided, for once, to see the bottle as half full. He felt like he had punched out God. He could go out, drink a bathtub full of booze, and sexually satisfy one hundred women. That's how he felt, if he was being honest with himself. He drank slowly as the sun set, sending soft orange light through the flimsy windows. He drank slowly as the moon rose. He held up the now-empty bottle and peered through it, catching some of the moonlight. He could see the full silver dime of the moon trapped in the oily glass. He lowered the bottle but kept his eyes on the pale disk in the inky sky. He smiled despite himself. He would be busy taking care of Vesper and Buddy's bodies. But hell, why not 
go out and enjoy his newly fought for and earned freedom. That booze bathtub and night of loose women wouldn't wait for him, now would they? That was Wolf, I'm Doug, and this is Mr. Wright. On the episode What's in a Name, I talked about building a world in the Micros version, thinking of character names. And on that note, I do want to say, uh, in terms of character names, when you see, there was a very specific reason why I picked the names I did for the three characters. Obviously, Peter Wolf is a reference to Peter and the Wolf. I was, you know, Neil Gaiman already took one of the best names for uh, another werewolf, uh, which was, uh, I think, Leonard Chaney, or, or it was a reference on, on Lon Chaney Jr. And uh, I've always kind of hated him for that and loved him for that all at the same time. I uh, also, you have Buddy, who I just really wanted a kind of friendly name uh, for a character who was really despicable and mean uh, and dumb. Uh, and then Vesper was chosen because it's Latin for wasp. And having Peter Wolf and Vesper kind of be the final two at the end was a reference to that there are only two animals you can take out of any ecosystem and nothing will change, dogs and wasps. So there's a little science for you as well. But I'm here to talk about building a world in the macros version. And there's going to be two ways I'm going to talk about this. One in terms of novel and one in terms of tabletop gaming. You intrigued? You should be. In terms of building in a novel, you want to look at what kind of world these people live in when you start thinking about building your world. Is it realistic? Obviously, in Wolf, it was. Um, it was set in modern times. There were modern conveniences. Uh, it was just a regular old city that never really gets named. Uh, the city's not really part of the story, so I didn't have to build a lot of the characteristics of it. Um, it was more of a character-driven piece. But those are the things you're going to want to look at. Is it medieval? Is it steampunk? Is it sci-fi? Um, if it is sci-fi, is it hard sci-fi, which means that science takes precedent, much like in Star Trek? Or is it more um, soft sci-fi, in which you have fantastical elements, such as Star Wars and the Force, or as my friends call it, space magic? Those are some of the things you want to think about. Um, transportation. If it's sci-fi, do you have jetpacks? Do you have spaceships? Uh, if it's steampunk, how steampunk sci-fi? How do the mechanics of their transportation work? How do their costumes work? Are they practical? Are they impractical? How do the weapons work? If there are weapons, or is it you know maybe in a medieval time you'd have uh, what's called high fantasy, which you have like magic and dragons and singing swords and you know uh, shields that you know can protect armies and stuff like that. Or do you have like low fantasy where um, you know it's very realistic and grounded in that world? These are the things you're going to want to think about when building a world in your novel, especially if you're setting it in a city that's going to be a character. In noir film and in neo-noir film and books such as John Ridley's stuff, cities take on a personality on their own. perfect example in terms of um, science fiction and cyberpunk. Warren Ellis's Transmetropolitan, the city itself, is a character. Other than having a quote-unquote name called The City, the main character, Spider Jerusalem, talks about how the city is alive and it changes and goes through it throughout the whole course of the five years of the comic, uh, finding new parts of it or rediscovering new parts of it for the reader and um, the characters in the books. Warren had to think about, okay, what kind of world is this? How does this city look? How does it react? How does it act? Um, things like that. Another good example, in my 
hopefully be finished eventually. Second novel, it's a, a character who basically just runs around his city, uh, Dim City, and I actually, while I was writing it, got out, uh, I got on like uh, Google and got like a, just a you know general map of uh, maybe like a 20 by 20 block radius of a city and threw out all the real names and put in my own street names so that when the readers are reading it and when I'm writing it, there are reference points to he turns left down this street and connects right to this street. And that's going to be always the same, that these two streets will connect. Once again, something you have to think about when you're building your world or city or town or what have you or a galaxy. Another really good example of doing this is tabletop gaming. I'm on a show called D20 Proof in which we play role-playing games, but the whole quote-unquote first season was playing Dungeons and & Dragons, and the co-dungeon master or game master, um, Brandon and I, kind of divided up the campaign, which was the game itself that the players play through, and he developed two worlds, and I developed two worlds. Now, I talked about this uh, before on Dan, that he's a much better DM than I am, and his worlds were a lot more uh, intricate and layered and nuanced, but he's very good at world building. Uh, when I played in his worlds, there were ways that we could have gone, that we didn't, there were ways we went that he didn't expect um, in certain circumstances, but his world was extremely well thought out, diagrammed. He knew if we turned left, we'd end up there. Um, or if we took this road, it would lead to this. Um, he knew if we got to end of road A, there would be this person, and road B would be this person. He had really fully thought out um, his world building. I, on the other hand, took influence from other pieces of fiction and built my world around the concept. My two worlds, which I'll talk about very briefly, uh, first was based on the Doctor Who episode, A Town Called Mercy, which is also a great song by The Jam. Um, and it was like a cyberpunk western, um, or maybe even, uh, yeah, I'd say cyberpunk western. Um, so I took my cue from that and had built this new town called Mercy that was full of automatons, like um, steam-powered uh, automatons, and um, a like magic nuclear facility, I guess you'd call it. And once again, when I was the DM, I had mapped out everywhere that they would go. Well, not that they would go, but everywhere they could go. So I had a map in front of me with a highlighter and going, okay, well, you're going left and you're going to see this. And if they double back, they would see the same thing, whether it be a burnt out husk of a building or more automatons or some kind of landmark. Uh, the second world I did was uh, based on Castlevania's, I'm going to get this wrong. Aria of Sorrow, I think. It was the first one for the PlayStation. And it's only, I only bring up that specific game because when you beat the game the first time, it says you're only 50% done and you find an inverted castle map. And I really wanted, that was, and it was a huge map. So I actually found the map on, on Google Images, uh, mapped out, copied most of it, and then populated it with traps and creatures and uh, non-playable characters or NPCs. And that was a more intricate map, but I knew the world that I was living in. Um, they never really got into the in, the nitty-gritty of that there was this town just outside of the castle, and 
there were these weird like blood lotteries happening and they never really got into that. But that was an aspect where AI bumped up my game because Brandon was better than me and I wanted to match his enthusiasm um, and skill and uh, develop more flavor text for what was going on, not just in the castle and like, oh, let's go fight monsters, but hey, there's something sinister going on here that leads into something that's in the castle. Um, so there was a story built into the concept of the map. That world was built. Brandon's, I don't remember the first one off the top of my head. I'm trying to think. You know, I don't remember the, oh, it was the the evil, uh, there were like a three princes that we had to kill two of them. Um, so it was very segment, it was a very segmented, fragmented world, as was his second world, which was based on Magic the Gathering, which had like five realms or regions that were based on the colors of Magic the Gathering, which I'm not going to get into because I could fall down that hole for quite some time. My point is, wrapping up, there are a myriad of ways you can go into world building. You could map it out, but, you know, or not. Um, it can be nebulous, if, especially in sci-fi, because you can just think of, oh, well, they're going to go to this planet now, and you don't really have to worry about the other planets around them unless you need them for reference. But it all starts with the kernel of... If you have your characters, what kind of like they may posit what kind of world they live in. Uh, in Time Capsule Hand Grenade, you know, you had the Satanic Hitman and the Trucker Hillbilly Second Coming of Jesus, or the Meta Buddha, I believe I called him. And that, you know, I needed to have a certain world that they could live in that they wouldn't be total outcasts. It wouldn't seem weird that the Satanic Hitman was in the medieval times. Actually, that sounds really cool. But. Um, something like that, where I had the third character, the Nowhere Man, that had been rotated out of three dimensions. Well, I needed to have a world where that science was there, but it wasn't so fantastical that it became like hard sci-fi or soft sci-fi. And sometimes, before you even have the characters, you go, I really want to write, you know, a steampunk western. And okay, now here are the rules to the world. Now I can dictate how those rules apply to characters A, B, C, D all the way to however many you have. So there are, like I said, a different couple ways you can attack world building. But bottom line is if the world is going to be a character itself, you have to build it. And if the character is going to be navigating large amounts of a city or keep coming across characters in a town or a galaxy far, far away, it's going to help to know how they live, where they live, why they live the way they live, and that world is going to predicate that. Keep world building, and think about those things when you do so. I'm Doug, this has been Mr. Wright. Remember, you keep writing, they'll keep reading. Right on. If you like this, check out some of our other shows like D20 Proof, Knapsack Comedy, and Mr. Wright. You can find us at www.bacnpodcast.com and by searching for BACN on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, yeah.